You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for a calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given your word to us, and so we now pray that you would speak, that we would hear, that we would be people of your word, that we would be people of the word, the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus, that you would be shaping and forming us uh, from the inside and out, and that you would be filling this earth with your glory. We pray that you would do this now in just a small way in these next 30 or 40 minutes or so in us, your people. We pray as we gather under your word, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Today is a torch week, so if you're a fourth through sixth grader and you want to think through uh, this coming king that we have been considering the last few weeks with Cedric and Stephen, uh, they'll take you upstairs into the choir room and you guys can hang out and get to know each other better and talk about our great king. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here and I would love to meet you if I haven't. This next week or so is going to be pretty busy for many of us, but man, we'd love to uh, meet with you over coffee or lunch and get to know you uh, in this next few weeks or months, uh, tell you about our church, tell you about who we are and who we long to be as a people and who we are under our great King Jesus. Well, this time is indeed a busy one, Um, and it is filled up with timelines and countdowns. Apparently, uh, the Hallmark Channel starts its countdown to Christmas on October 22nd, just filling up each and every one of your nights with the same exact movie over and over and over, just with new characters and uh, different names, but the same characters. Uh, Anyone want to confess to that? Hallmark movies? All right, a few. uh, uh, For the last several months, you could not 
turn on your TV, you could not open a computer or an app on your phone without seeing reminders that Spider-Man is coming out, and it has come out. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, so no spoilers, please. Uh, or that the Book of Boba Fett comes out in a couple of weeks or something on Disney+. Plus. Uh, like, it's everywhere, or at least it's everywhere in my life because the algorithm knows me or knows my children one way or the other. But trailers come out months in advance to build expectation to start the countdown clock in t inside your soul uh, for something to come out. And of course, nearly all Christmas movies are trying to build the same sort of expectation toward an actual Christmas day. And yet, I've already heard many people begin speaking about 2022. Like Christmas is just like a speed bump. And I have begun thinking about and speaking about 2022. We always look forward to what's next the next movie, the next holiday, the next year, the next vacation, the next sports season, the next, the next, the next, the next. And we've together over the past several years indeed thought about the, the foolishness of just wishing your life away, thinking about what's next and hoping for that next thing, assuming that life will finally be good and fulfilled when this happens or when that happens. And even as crazy as it sounds, perhaps not wishing our life away in that wishing it was suddenly 2024 or something, and that COVID was now long behind us. Because God has means and wisdom enough to shape us now. In 2021 and 2022, it's often through the most difficult times that we are in a place where we are most moldable, most shapeable by God. So perhaps we shouldn't so easily long for a future in which things are easier or easier again. But is there a time in the Christian's life when we should long for the future? Is there ever a time in life when it's actually okay, perhaps good, to be discontent? Is there such thing as a holy discontentment? Yes, there is. And yet, I'm sure you've heard the phrase often leveled against Christians that oftentimes they are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good, and that's a zinger. But I'm not sure, if I'm honest, I'm not sure that I've actually ever met someone about whom that's actually true. I'm sure it has certainly been true for some people and of some people of uh, some places, but at least in 21st century Western countries, certainly for us as American Christians, I don't think we're that heavenly-minded at all. We can be, some, to some degree. But in fact, I've heard the opposite. That's perhaps more true, that we are so earthly-minded that we become of little heavenly good. We become so fixated on the here and now. That's often the case for me, that I get too preoccupied or minutely focused on the day-to-day, -day, perhaps even the hour-by-hour, -hour, maybe even the year-by-year, with the cares and worries of this world and of today, that I can actually lose focus on the reality of a world or an age to come. So here we go, everyone. There is a world, there is an age to come. Just as Jesus has come to in his first coming, uh, completely changed the landscape of sin and forgiveness, of God's presence on earth, of who God's people are, once an ethnic people belonging to him by first birth, now a spiritual people but now belonging to him by a second birth. Well, his first coming only began that work of transformation. 
His second coming will altogether change and utterly transform the entire universe. So we've been thinking about Jesus as the coming king from the past two weeks from the book of Isaiah, as the king who will come from Isaiah 51 and the king who is come from Isaiah 53. And so now it is to that second coming, the second advent of Jesus that we're going to turn our attention to today now in Isaiah 65 as the king who will come again. And we'll consider this under three separate headings of what King Jesus will do and accomplish and transform in his second coming. So we'll think through this in three headings of the king creates, the king comforts, and his people wait. So first of all, the king creates. In verse 17 of Isaiah 65 that you heard Gail read, God says through his prophet Isaiah, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This verse beginning this new creation section, is thick in the middle of a context of lots and lots and lots of judgment. In chapter 63, Isaiah looks forward into the so-called day of the Lord, where God comes in judgment over his enemies. His enemies include the nations that have made their kingdoms out of violence and out of exploitation, out of hatred of God. And in chapter 64, Israel experiences God's anger as well. Not just the nations out there, but God's people in here, as they too have rejected him. And even in the first half of chapter 65, there is invitation and there is judgment. In verse 1 of chapter 65, God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am. This is God speaking. What a patient and long-suffering God who over and over and over again pleads with people. Pleads with people who are not yet his people. Pleads with people who are his people saying, here I am, come and worship me. He invites, not out of needy desperation, but out of love. If God is indeed the one who has created us and he knows what we need better than we do, namely that we need himself, then it is out of love, it is out of joy that he demands worship of all peoples, out of love. But Israel keeps rejecting and keeps rejecting and keeps rejecting. We saw last week what will ultimately transform such a people, what will bring forgiveness, what will bring transformation, that God himself will come as a second Adam, the true Israelite, to suffer for his people and give them his righteousness. In this place of history, on that side of the cross in Isaiah's day, Isaiah looks forward towards this future coming, the future advent of Jesus, the suffering servant, the king who comes once to suffer and die, and then he comes again. Now what is a future reality for us on this side of the cross in a new Genesis 1-1 type reality? He will once again, in a new, in the beginning moment, create the heavens and the earth. In chapter 65, verse 17. He will once again create anew the place of his glory and dwelling, the place where he lives and communes with his people, a new Eden, a final and new temple, something that, again, from our perspective, is still future. A place where, verse 17, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This doesn't mean that anyone who lives in this future age to come, uh, this new creation, won't have any memory of the past. But 
in this wider Isaiah context of sin and rejection and judgment and suffering, all of that will not be remembered or dwelled on any longer. So, what are we talking about here? What are we talking about in this new creation reality? We've got plenty to consider from the rest of this chapter, but are we talking about heaven here? Is God going to so give up on this world that he will toss it aside and try again? It didn't work in a first creation, so he's going to just maybe go again for round two, see if it works out this time? No. Now, the rest of the Bible can help us put together some of these categories, but we're not talking about, necessarily here in chapter 65, heaven in the popular imagination, but a newly created version of this reality, of this earth. We won't get into a huge theology of the afterlife and end times tonight. Uh, For what it's worth, though, sometime in 2022, the plan is to get to the book of Daniel, which will help us with some end times categories. But let me see if we can briefly get our bearings here. First, heaven is actually a real and actual place. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that he was taken up into the inner courts of heaven. He's not sure if it's a bodily or out-of-body experience. His experience was very similar to other prophets' visions of God, even Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, where God is worshipped and glorified by the heavenly courts. Heaven is an actual place where Jesus ascended to in Acts chapter 1. We're in Philippians 2. Jesus has been exalted and he reigns. Heaven, we might say, is Jesus' command center. Heaven is a place where in this age, God's people can expect to live in his presence after their death. When the thief on the cross expresses faith in Christ, Jesus tells him that today he will be with him in paradise. When Paul is considering life and death in Philippians 1, he says that to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. He actually desires to depart, he says, that is to die and be with Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, in many ways, I'm so thankful for many resources, resources like the Bible Project that are building upon uh, other biblical scholars' work who have tried to refocus our eternal hope. But it seems like more and more Christians these days are more cynically like looking down our noses at the Sunday school lessons that we learned about heaven that maybe it actually isn't a real thing, that maybe we actually shouldn't hope to spiritually be present with Christ after death. Because in addition to more than what I've just briefly shared, it is the overwhelmingly clear teaching of the Bible that when a Christian dies, he or she goes to heaven. But all that being said, it's true. Heaven, a place of spiritually dwelling in God's presence, is actually not the Christian's final and full hope. We await the return of the king. And Mr. M, who's joining us later in the podcast this week from uh, Central Asia, he was ragging on me this week that he thinks I've got, I don't know how many weeks in a row of a streak going with uh, Lord of the Rings uh, references. So I just got it, if we want to count that, the return of the king. But Jesus' second coming is what every Christian should hope and long for. Not necessarily heaven a life after death, but Jesus' return, a newly created heaven and earth. Heaven, as experienced right now by Christians who have died, is often referred to as the intermediate state, the middle stage, before Jesus returns to make all things new, as Jesus says he'll do in Revelation 21. But in this new creation, he makes all things new. He doesn't make all new things. He transforms this world, which we read about here in 
Isaiah 65, which is similar but different to Genesis 1-1. In Genesis 1-1, God created something from nothing. But in Isaiah 65, God creates new from old. As Paul says in Romans 8, that creation waits in birth pangs, not death pangs, but birth pangs. Birth pangs that give way to a new birth, a new reality. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, that the perishable and the corruptible will then one day put on the imperishable and the incorruptible. Almost like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly or an acorn becoming a giant oak tree is the kind of transformation that the biblical authors have in mind when they are thinking about this newly created heaven and earth. A transformation of something old into something new. And so, while it is absolutely true that we should hope and expect to go to heaven after our death, we should not hope for the intermediate stage. We should hope for the final and the consummated stage, or as one author describes, the major vision of the Bible holds out that heaven isn't a kind of outer spatial angelic ether, a place that we go to as our ultimate hope, but rather a tangible and visceral place that comes to us. Jesus himself teaches us to pray that uh, God's kingdom come would be made known on earth as it is in heaven. And so this is the new reality, an age to come in which we should actually look forward to in, in growing hope and in expectation. And it is this new created, this new genesis, this new Eden reality that Isaiah is describing here. But why will it be so great? The king creates at his coming, but now secondly, the king comforts. In this newly created age and reality, the oak tree that has come from this mere acorn that we live in and experience today, Isaiah says that there will be two things that this full oak tree will actually be filled up with. And in the rest of chapter 65, this oak tree of this newly transformed age will be full of joy and of life. Verse 18, but be glad, God says to his people, and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Now, theologically, many Christians can believe and understand that God is pleased in us because he is pleased in Christ. But just like we considered last week, I think too often we can live in such a way in which we think and believe and experience that God is actually very angry with us, very disappointed in us. Even though we thought about last week that it is out of love that God comes to save, to redeem a people. And so can you imagine a reality, a never-fading reality in which you constantly, don't just understand, but that you believe, that you know, that you feel God's immense joy in you. That the creator of the universe rejoices in who you are. For those of you who are redeemed in the Son, that you are sealed by the Spirit, that you are now sons and daughters of the Father. And when God rejoices over his people, then his people rejoice in him. It's this ever-growing, never-fading cycle. If now fully living in the oak tree branches of God's holiness and joy, then we will be utterly transformed into his holiness, into his joy. Or as John says in 1 John 3, that when we see him, we will become like him. Just a vision 
of the resurrected Christ will bring utter, final, full transformation in us. Finally, the self-worship, the doubt, the anxiety of not knowing and not experiencing his full presence, gone. Finally and forever. Only joy, compounding on joy, exponentially compounding on more and more joy. Unbelievable. And not just sin, doubt, and anxiety gone, but sadness altogether. Verse 19, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. One commentator says that weeping is felt pain. Crying is inflicted pain. So whether this, these tears are brought about by internal suffering or external suffering, the emotion and the cause are now both gone. Let that sink in. The emotion of, that brings about the tears and the cause that, the, the emotion of the tears and the cause that brings about the tears, now gone. As there have been many, many tears over the past few weeks and months and years together, from you, from me, for all of us together, so many tears for so many different reasons, so many causes, both internal causes, external causes, from physical pain, sickness and disease, many in your own bodies, many in the bodies of your loved ones, the death of your loved ones, either just recently or remembering past grief. Other tears have been brought about by financial worry, tears born out of loneliness, others from abuse, others from anger against evil and injustice. More tears from depression and anxiety and just a cumulative malaise of the past two years that seemingly is just building on top of each other. And Isaiah looks towards a day when all of those tears and all of their causes will be gone forever. Because the comfort that God's people will experience is not just some generic comfort. Not just some generic, even, distraction. We can often joke that sometimes uh, the best thing that you can do uh, for sadness or for a broken heart is to go get like a half gallon of chocolate ice cream. That isn't comfort. It's mere distraction. It's just an endorphin release of a different kind that will maybe help you remember the, or forget the sadness for just a short while. The joy of the new creation is not just a higher level of endorphin release, but a personal comforting of the conquering king himself. The nearness, the love, the comfort of Jesus that we see throughout the gospel accounts that all gets then ratcheted up to 11. When in Revelation 21, John sees our future. John sees your future, Christian, described like this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. Jesus himself will wipe away every tear. I don't know when or how any of this will work. But perhaps it will be as 
Elsewhere is described that we will offer individual crowns of worship to King Jesus. Perhaps at the same moment, he will come with a Kleenex. What tenderness of our conquering king to know us, to know the causes of all of the tears and to comfort them specifically, not generically. He eagerly waits to welcome and personally comfort you. And again, this is not a generic, pretend like everything's okay, distract you with endorphins kind of comfort. This is specific comfort over specific tears, over specific causes, specific struggles and losses that God says in Isaiah 65, 19, will be no more. Dead and gone. Or in Isaiah 25, another vision, a feast of celebration in Isaiah 25. A giant feast, very similar to the one in Revelation 21. But again, not just endorphins of good food and wine, but a realistic, a very real feast of transformation. Verse 8 of Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever. And again, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The emotions and the causes are swallowed up, absorbed, and sent away, done away with forever. And listen, this is not some pie in the sky, like sociology of religion type thing that just describes that all people long for some sort of afterlife. That's understandably evolutionarily or something like that. We all long to see our loved ones again, and we long to be with them forever. So we can, this is just some religious version of many other religious versions of a longing for the afterlife. Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross, and he rose to new life. The man of sorrows who can understand and empathize with your weakness, the good shepherd who was struck for his very sheep, Jesus of Nazareth has risen from the dead. And if that is so, if that is true, then his resurrection is just the first fruits of a greater resurrection. He is just but the first sprout of the oak tree, shooting forth out of the dirt. And if we are united to him, enjoying all of the safety and the security of his strong oak tree, living in his branches, if he is risen, then all of this is true. Then the king will return and make all of the sad things untrue. If he is not risen, then none of this is true, and let's just go live our lives. In all of the sadness, finding the chocolate ice creams, and whatever vacations or holidays or sporting events or kids' successes or whatever we think might bring us happiness, let's just pursue those things because that's all there is in this life. If he is risen, though, there is much, much more. And what is this new creation reality? What is this comfort of living in his branches? It is a very undoing of the curses of Genesis 3. Verse 20, No longer will infants die, a very real reality of the pain in childbirth curse from Genesis 3. Men and women will live out the fullness of their lives. Verse 20 says that the young man shall die a hundred years old. This does not mean that there will still be death, but that the very old will still seem very young in this new age. We already know from Isaiah 25 that he will swallow up death forever. So Isaiah is using poetic language here to just say that there is an utter and complete fullness of life as we humans were created to live in. 
We are fulfilling our purpose, our vocation as God's people. That verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In Isaiah 65, they are currently, the people are currently experiencing the opposite of verses 21 and 22, as they are slaves. They are servants in Babylon. They are working for someone else's enjoyment. Not so here. They get to enjoy the fruits of their labor as they just live out their life with God and with one another. In the second half of verse 22, like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They're not toiling under curse like Adam was put under in Genesis 3. But verse 23, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, but they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. And then check this, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Now there's a sense in which that's already true. In his goodness, God does provide things for us that we don't even ask for. Praise the Lord for that. We often don't even know what to ask for. And he is still kind. He is still gracious. And there are times when he does respond immediately to our prayers. But the imagery here that Isaiah is painting is almost like a mind meld. Or the better, less Star Trek-y theological category for this is union with Christ. That of his death becoming our death, of his life becoming our life, of his inheritance becoming our inheritance, of his desires becoming our desires. We, broke, broken, uh, weak, fallen sinners, get invited into the very life of the triune God. And so our desires are his desires. He is answering what we are asking all like this in real space in time because we are so united, so brought into the life of the triune God, that we might know him fully and unencumbered. As J.I. Packer famously wrote, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? What is that life? To know God. What is the best thing in life? To know God. Often we don't believe that to be true. But God himself is saying, this is true. You were made to know me, to enjoy me, to be brought into my very life. This is the purpose and end of creation, to know God in security and peace. No more doubt or anxiety, only perfect knowledge. No more sin or self-worship, only perfect love. No more sadness or tears, only perfect comfort. A transformed reality in which all threats are gone. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Genesis 3 is sucked up, is transformed, is repurposed, and put to good use for the glory of God and for the good and joy of his people. But all of this is still a future reality. I don't think I need to tell you that that's true. Like, it takes about three seconds to, oh yeah, 
have our bearings brought back from this future reality and then look at all of that out there and look at all of this in here and be reminded this is not reality yet. The king will indeed one day come and create and comfort. But until then, his people wait. Thirdly now, we must wait. Revelation 1-7 is absolutely true, in which John says, Behold, he is coming, Jesus, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, John says, that the day of the Lord is simultaneously a day of judgment, of judgment for those who have marginalized Jesus, who have ignored him, have rejected him. So the question for Many of us in this room tonight might be, might this be a day of salvation for you? As you think of his second coming, will you consider his first coming as a servant to live and die for you, to be struck for you, to take your sin and give you his righteousness? And I pray that you would consider in his first coming, his second coming as well. That today might be a day of salvation, that you would look and long for a day of ultimate salvation. And yet, the day of the Lord is not just a day of judgment, it is a day of salvation. And yet, does waiting for this day of salvation make you worthless today? Does it make you useless today? Does it make you of no earthly good? Now, if waiting is merely just us, like, standing with our hands in our pockets, like looking out the window, waiting for Jesus to come back, growing so frustrated with the world and so, so frustrated with our own experience in the world that we just kind of throw up our hands in frustration and exasperation and just wait for Jesus to fix it all, then yes. That is not the kind of waiting that the return of Christ should foster in his people. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of giving money, giving talents, money to his servants. And he tells of two servants who went and used the money in trading and investing to make more money for the master, more money for the kingdom. While this last servant, he didn't do anything with it. He didn't want to risk the money, so he buried it in the dirt, waiting for the master to come back. And we might even say waiting with hope and expectation. He did expect the master to come back. So he didn't want to lose this money. But Jesus condemns this man who does nothing. This parable comes right between, on one side of it, the parable of the ten young women who weren't prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And then on the other side of this parable, he, Jesus teaches on the final judgment of his second coming. So will we bury our waiting? Will we bury our lives in the sand and merely just stand at the window waiting for him to come back? Or will we turn around and invest the grace that God has shown us into others, into each other, into our neighborhoods, into the world? Yes, 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 and we must. With daily diligence, investing what God has given us into each other and into the world. But is there also a sense in which we can be discontent with this present reality? A holy discontentment, a holy waiting in which we are longing for Jesus to return. Is waiting on the coming of Christ actually that much different than waiting for the coming of Spider-Man? 
waiting for the next vacation, the hypothetical next championship of your favorite sports team that will never come? It won't. Maybe someday. Is is the coming of Christ that much better than a potential future marriage, potential future children, or whatever it is that you find yourself most waiting for? Yes, the coming of Christ is all the difference in your life and in the age to come. The next experience, even good and amazing ones, even a good and flourishing marriage or children or your dream job or whatever, these things will not make things good and right in your life. And they certainly will not make things good and right in all of creation. Even if you do find satisfaction in the next job promotion or something. Well, first, perhaps you should actually reflect if it actually is giving you the satisfaction that you think it's giving. But is it doing much for the world? Is it doing much for the impoverished around the world? Are people coming to Christ? If so, praise the Lord, but certainly not the whole world. And so when trust in institutions and bureaucracies and politicians and authorities is perhaps now at an all-time low, we must now fix our hope on a good and trustworthy king of them all, an authority of all authorities, a king of kings and lord of lords. Who knows uh, this king? Who knows the best and right approach for COVID? Who knows the best and most flourishing way to economics or policing or debt, whatever it is? But who also knows the very real worries and anxieties that you have and will comfort and will transform all of them. So while we don't put up our feet in the midst of all these difficulties, while we don't just distract ourselves or entertain ourselves out of the felt weight of all of those things, it is not unbiblical to long for, to pray for the coming of Jesus. It's the very last line of the Bible. Even so, Come soon, Lord Jesus. The fact that Jesus will return to do all of this is actually what makes investing into today worthwhile. If Jesus is not going to return, then just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we all die. There is no ultimate justice, either individually or cosmically. But in Isaiah 25, the great feast of God at Mount Zion, where he swallows up death forever, God says that it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, the people are saying. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is what the people in Isaiah 25 are commended for, that they have waited on the salvation of the Lord. That doesn't mean that they kick up their feet and do nothing, but that only the return of Christ can come to make all of this right. We've been, our family's been watching uh, the reality show Alone. Anybody? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, where 10 random people are dropped into uh, separate places in the wilderness with they get 10 survival items that they can pick and then a few cameras that they can chronicle day-to-day life. 
They chronicle day one and two and three and then day 20 and 40 and 60. And whoever stays the longest out of any of these 10 people wins $500,000. The thing is you don't know when other people are quitting. And so you're just going day by day by day. And so when the second to last person taps out and quits, on that last day, the winner is greeted by their spouse, another loved one in their family, The winner woke up on whatever it is, day 92 or something, the same way that he woke up or she woke up on day 91. It's just another day. Another day of planning towards struggle, of cold and wet and hunger and pain and just longing for home. Digging in for the long haul to just survive today so that they can make it another But then out of the blue, their loved one appears. And then it gets me every time, the the last moment of the series, uh, when a wife or a daughter or whomever it is greets their husband or their father and in sobbing tears say, you did it, you won, we get to go home. And then after that, you see, a, like a 15-minute reunion of family a month or two later or something like that. And they never have, for the rest of their lives, these families, they never have any problems. They never have any conflicts. They never have any tension at all for the rest of their lives because now they have $500,000. But that winning moment... The winning moment of the sobbing embrace gets me every time because in some small way, it cultivates expectation in me for the return of Christ. That the struggle is over. That now being united to Jesus' winning the battle, we are now more than conquerors. We have won with him. Now free from the emotion of sadness and all of the causes of sadness, And it is to this moment that we hope and wait. The appearance of the king in light and in salvation, saying, it is finished. Lo, look, lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousands and thousands of saints attending. Hail the king who comes again. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God appears on earth to reign. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our King, in this time of Christmas, in the time that we build in our own hearts and longings uh, your coming, your first coming as a weak and vulnerable baby, that you might grow to become a child, that you might grow to become a man, living your entire life in obedience and delight in the Father, living righteously on our behalf, and then dying a sacrificial life or sacrificial death on our behalf. God, we pray that you might use this time, use this week, just a few more days until Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, use this week to build in us an even growing expectation for your second coming. 
that in your first you have brought forgiveness, but in your second coming, King Jesus, that you might bring utter and total transformation. Help us to long for this day. Help us to lift our eyes and fix our hope far and far and far into the future, into a sure and steady anchor. King Jesus, even so we pray, come quickly. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.